Welcome to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we inspire collaborative thinking, improved outcomes, and business success with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders and influencers. And now your host, Saul Marquez. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have the privilege of hosting Denise Silber. She is the CEO of Doctors 2.0 and you. Driven by a passion to improve healthcare through better use of digital innovation, Denise, founder and president of Basile Strategies and of the Doctors 2.0 and You conference series, has a deep vision and understanding of the opportunities and challenges of digital health with 20 plus years of experience. She's a global thought leader and social media influencer based in Paris. Denise contributes her unique experience as both a strategic digital health consultant and coach in marketing and communication, and as a digital health keynote speaker, MC, and conference curator. Multicultural and multilingual, Denise was one of the rare Americans to receive the Legion of Honor from the French government for her work in international e-health. She deploys her skills in strategy, communication, events, training, and writing to help digital projects push forward. If there's anybody that can help push your project forward, it's Denise. And so it's a true pleasure to have her here on the podcast with us. And uh, with that, I want to go ahead and open the mic to you, Denise. Welcome. Well, thank you so much. It was really lovely of you to seek me out for this interview, and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too, Denise. Did did, did I leave anything out of your intro that you want to share with the listeners about you? I think that was um, already uh, quite nice. So let's just hop into it. Thank you though, for the opportunity. <laughs> that sounds good. So why did you decide to get into the healthcare sector? So it was a combination of wanting to and finding the right opportunity at, at, a, at a right moment. Few people know that very early on as a teen, I was considering becoming a doctor. And then I went to an open house at a hospital and realized that I didn't think I would have the stamina and strength to be surrounded by people with, at the time, what I perceived as such suffering and vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And later, when I was at a couple of times in in my life, my first job after college was with the U.S. Foreign Service, and I was put in a public health position visiting uh, rural medical centers and uh, city hospitals I was very interested in trying to help from a policy standpoint. And then when I was getting my MBA, one of the offers I received was to go to work for a leading pharmaceutical company. And I thought, well, this is it. This is my opportunity to observe a little bit more closely what's going on in the healthcare system. Wow. So it's like one thing after another, whether it be through a hospital or or at a pharma company, you just sort of kept this healthcare thing just kept popping up in your life. Yes. <laughs> it was unavoidable. Yes. Well, I think it pops up in, in everyone's life, although perhaps in mine a bit more as a child, because there were in the previous uh, generation and the generation before a presence of physicians in part of my one side of my family. And uh, these people were looked upon as heroes hmm. from the other side. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and, and so... You took the opportunity and fast forward to today. Wow. I mean, you've done so many great things. You've got this conference where you bring people together on, a, on this theme of, you know, just being digitally focused. What would you say a hot topic that needs to be on health leaders agendas today is and how are you guys thinking and, and approaching it? 
Well, the hot topic would be the flexibility that leaders need to have in terms of planning for the future in a world where I believe that the health system, the treatments in the health system won't be structured in the same way. I just came back from the second edition of the virtual medicine conference. And when I see the enthusiasm and results for therapeutic virtual reality, and as well, the fact that in general, the term of digital therapeutics is catching on and the use of digital for prevention, for prevention that up until now has not been successful. And that all of these things take us out of as well, at least in part, from the physical buildings, then I think I begin to see what I had hoped to see, which is that when people are thinking of the healthcare system, they think of simply bringing solutions to people with medical problems and not, well, I've got these hospitals and I've got these healthcare professionals, what am I going to do with them? That's not the best perspective for how do we organize ourselves to provide the best healthcare to people. Yeah, and, and it's happening. And, and I think now more than ever, you, you have the use of, of digital technologies, telemedicine present. And, and I think it's important that we focus on how do we stay focused on our core mission. Give us an example of either something you or, or one of your clients has, has gone through or done to achieve better outcomes or improve healthcare. Well, I'm thinking of a, um, a study that was done by a hospital in Strasbourg, so in Alsace, France, with an artificial intelligence consulting company who is a partner. And this study was able to demonstrate in respect to mammograms, the usefulness of the mammogram in that with two populations who were observed retrospectively, who had not been in a study, but because they were able to use software that could gather data that was unstructured, that wasn't even in official or what you think of as the electronic medical record, but that could Mm -hmm. have been in notes or any other way. They were able to to demonstrate that women who came in regularly for mammograms had better life expectancy than those who did not. That is certainly uh, one way to not put an end to, but to bring a solid argument to the debate about whether we are excessively exposing people to x-rays and taking their time and creating an expense. I mean, there is a debate about women and, and mammograms or and, and so you, prevention. You feel that in the end, the data showed that it is actually good and right. the quality of life as well as, I guess, <laughs> the health span of an individual is, is, is better because of it. And if we can say that, um, so I have two types of professional activity, although they're very interrelated. One is the consulting on communications aspect of something, and the other is making events for medical professionals better. So a second example of outcomes is the fact that I was an important part as the moderator of the patient panel at the virtual medicine conference because there I was able to put the patients at ease so that people who are not ordinarily in the business of speaking to a professional audience, this was a CME accredited event, 
were able to really explain how they had gone from pain or anxiety to a state of peacefulness and uh, resolution of their problem through the use of virtual reality. So to me, that's why I, I know that I'm repeating what I mentioned earlier is what should people be on the lookout for. But up until now, and I think this is an important distinction, digital has basically been putting information in the right place. The example that I gave about the mammography, mammograms is that case. The individual patient isn't going to feel better because they took that mammogram. That was a demographic study that overall tells public health policymakers what to do. But in this case, with virtual reality, it is the first time ever that a digital tool shows right directly to the mind and face of the patient yeah. how to feel better and right away. And they also felt that after doing this for a while, they can actually get themselves into that state. It's also a teaching tool. Yeah, that's, uh, there's a lot of promise to that. And you know, to your point, unlike the more traditional brick and mortar solutions, the VR set could be shipped to a patient at their own home and they could do it from their own home. They absolutely are expected to. I mean, it might be a hospitalized patient because that was one of the cases as somebody who had massive pains due to irritable bowel syndrome or disease uh, and who was hospitalized, but then used it at home. Additionally, I don't know if there have been studies using things like Google Cardboard or other uh, very inexpensive tools, but it will work with that as well. That's awesome. That's fascinating. Have you ever put one of these on and, and experienced it yourself? Absolutely. So several times. Unfortunately, I can't say that I did it. Well, I'm glad I can say that I did not <laughs> do it from a, from a suffering, from a medical standpoint. First one that I had tried was the glass elevator, where okay. I have a 360 viewpoint from inside the elevator. And yeah. it, depending on how fast you accelerate your head in the direction that you go, that's what you see. Now, it so happens I am not, I don't get worried when I get into uh, an elevator in one of those hotels that has the glass elevators, but <laughs> I definitely felt that acceleration. I felt uh, the exhilaration of yeah, it. I yeah. then also tried one, which was, I'm a conference person. I go to events as well to, in order to bring exciting things to other, to the more traditional medical conferences. So I went for a number of times to Games for Health Europe branch, which is often held in, or held in the Netherlands. And at that one, I, so some of their games are, are virtual. I tried on one that had to do with physical therapy, where you would see it shapes, like shiny shapes on a dark background, and you would have to move your gaze to shoot them down. Hmm. By doing this, they would disappear. And that gives you physical therapy that is measurable because hmm. when you tell somebody do this movement 45 times, they may not count, they may not count right, but you can see it with, through a game method and the game would end when you've done your, your dose. When, right now at Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles, I also tried on one where you are um, in the body of a person with dementia, with a wow. form of dementia. And so you're in your house and you're seeing people come, but you're sort of not seeing them right. 
Now, I don't know how perfectly they imitate because they, they cannot be in the head of the demented person right, to, right. to know. But it was a very di distorted compared to how I see things. Uh, mm. The sound and the view were sort of coming in and out and were incomplete and, and a bit scary. So those are all different purposes. That was to train a healthcare professional on empathy, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. All these different applications and uh, it's neat that you've, you've tried the different ones. Uh, oh, and I must say that I, I tried one uh, at our own. It's something I had organized where that particular model, and this was a couple of years ago, and I can't remember exactly which model it was. It was not for me. That was a model where there must have been a problem of delay between in some way of, of what delay of what you see, it made me uh, seasick right away oh, and I took wow. it off. So they're improving that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm always interested in, in seeing these things. Yeah. <laughs> Super interesting. And you know, what I found most interesting, thank you for sharing that. I, you know, the most interesting part is, gosh, the different applications for virtual reality. You walked us through an empathy with the Alzheimer patients. Yeah. Oh, and, and I love the one where also the person can look down and see their avatar's limb mm. because this can, the, that limb can walk and then that can project to them that they can walk. Wow. Yeah. That feeling, right? Wow. Yeah. That's so interesting. I, I had a chance to, to do one was meditation and then it just kind of placed me in a forest. It was really neat. And, and by the way, I was like stressed before I did it and I'm like, let me try this. And it really did relax me. And then the other one that I tried was a training. It was orthopedic training, how to use orthopedic mm -hmm. surgery equipment fascinating stuff. The applications are, are plentiful and, and folks like you probably are thinking, wow, you know, like, gosh, what else do they use this on? And that is a good question because uh, there's a lot of things that VR is being used on. So appreciate you bringing that to the conversation, Denise. Right. And I, I thought of something that might be uh -huh. fun that goes back to your earlier questions, but it's in relation to this. Yeah. You said, is there anything I haven't said about you? I own a 3D version of myself. So that, that has to do with digital. Well, I was in uh, <laughs> Barcelona on a personal okay. visit with friends when I walked yeah. past this 3D printing store mm -hmm. and I saw that it was full of tiny figurines uh, that people purchase of different size. So I stood on a pedestal that turns okay. and they took 4,000 photos in like something like seven minutes. And I have this figurine. Now, I just did it out of my digital curiosity. I wanted to see if this could really look like myself, but I talked with them and they produce ears for a local oh, wow. surgeon out of their own material, but it enables the surgeon to then make one out of the material that he needs to use to create an ear, for example, for a person who is missing one. Wow. I can imagine that it could as well give a new body sense to a person um, who feels off balance hmm. or, or whatever. I just wanted to, the thrill of it. Um, yeah, anyway. no, it's very interesting. So how big is the figurine? Oh, maybe five, six inches. It, it's, okay. it's very small. It's very small. I remember as a little kid, I wanted a Superman or Supergirl <laughs> uh, figurine. Well, now you have it. Did you put a little cape on it? Uh, not yet, but that's a good idea. 
<laughs> I love it. No, that's really great. So, so Denise, you, you've done some some really interesting work in your career and, and with what you're doing today. What would you say one thing that a setback that you had that you learned a lot from that's made you even stronger and better? Well, I firmly believe that failure is always useful unless it's a failure that puts an end totally to anything you could ever do. Mm -hmm. uh, again, I mean, physically or whatever, that there's no way to, to start again. So it's true that none of the failures really were a total setback. An example would be uh, my initial relation to startups. I joined one of the earliest second opinion medical startups in the U.S. nearly 20 years, yeah, 20 years ago, 1999. And we didn't get to reach the milestones and get the financing that we needed. There was a, the first internet bubble at the oh, time. Mm -hmm. And it was so difficult because you had to really walk on eggs in relation to getting a second opinion. Yeah. It was perceived as versus and not with the original opinion, you know, putting the doctor's ability in question. Uh, whereas these are very complex situations and actually it's more likely than not that you'd have as many opinions, at least variations based on the number of people that you would ask. So when that didn't work out, I accepted another position with um, the very first surgical online community. And that didn't work out either. They also didn't have their funding because it was too soon. Yeah. So I learned from those experiences to be very wary of these great ideas because you need enough people. It's, it's a delicate balance between you don't want to launch something that there are 50 million of them and this brings nothing. And on the other hand, if you're too soon, you won't have enough supporters to make it viable. So I have a certain distance with respect to founders of startups who <laughs> could come across as saying, this is a really amazing idea. It's going to work. I, I've seen from the inside how things don't necessarily work, even if they seemed logical. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really great call out, Denise, and speaks to your experience. Every great idea is a great idea until it's not. And <laughs> it's definitely uh, great that you mentioned that. Something for the listeners to keep in mind, if you're looking at something that seems exciting, you got to really vet it out. What would you tell the listeners, Denise? How do you tell? Like, you know, it may seem like a great idea. It may seem logical, but what's that thing that you see and say, that's it, that's not it? Well, it depends on what market you're after. If you're going to need, I mean, you would know this well with your day job. If you're going after a market with reimbursement, mm -hmm. then you have to wonder, and what timeline is this company or service going to get the proof it needs to submit to a regulatory authority? And can they last through that? That is a key question because originally many digital inventors weren't thinking of going down that regulatory path. And people realized that because healthcare functions big time based on reimbursement, you have to mm -hmm. uh, do that. And that may well be a question you can't answer that you might need to show to people used to trials because they can say, well, you're going to need X number of users in two groups and to show a statistical difference. And you can start to wonder whether this service will show that. Yeah, that's a great call out. What's one of your proudest leadership experiences that you've uh, had to date? 
overall, it was in creating a movement and I would say a, a happiness or appreciation yeah. through the events that, that I've either created or assisted with, and in particular, giving patients a voice. So when I first launched Doctors 2.0, it was a standalone conference. Now it's an embedded session in another conference. Mm. But back at the beginning of this decade that is ending, it was very rare to have organized a conference where you would have several patients speaking and to treat them like a speaker, to have them, to give them transport, to ask them for their biography, their photo, uh, to give them a keynote position. And and they all, if I were to ask them, but most spontaneously said that taking the stand in front of an audience where there were senior people, healthcare professionals and managers, listening to them, not only as a peer, but listening to them as a speaker, yes. did more for them than in certain cases, their medicine, which is another thing that I should mention in looking at the healthcare system for the future, the idea of looking at the whole person and not just one particular medical condition, which is very difficult for a professional to do because they're led to practice through a specialty, if not a subspecialty. But the joy, the goosebumps of seeing the patient pull out the lessons of their medical and digital experience, because all those that we invited had both. They had a medical condition to which they had somehow contributed in terms of solution along with the healthcare professional by using, the, by using new technologies, the internet, an app or something in some way to improve their, their status. Denise, what inspired you to start Doctors 2.0? One day, a few couple of years before that, <laughs> yeah. I found myself organizing as a volunteer an event that had turned into 300 people. I had been an expert for this French commission that was trying to determine what to do with the quality certification for um, web for web stuff, websites. Okay. And I had created an association to discuss this with stakeholders to go beyond what the government was doing. And is and this for healthcare out, in particular or in general? Yes, it was for quality of healthcare. Okay, got it. One of the things that I had done early on was I was mm -hmm. invited to many group working groups about the quality of information, of healthcare information. And so that led me to around the world. I, I did this uh, in the US and various European countries. I guess I shouldn't say around the world. I did not do this in languages in, in Asia, for example. Okay. But that was a Eurocentric remark. However, I, I did participate in so many of these reflections on what do we do with information that hasn't been vetted by a medical publisher that I wound up creating a symposium and a large company gave us a huge auditorium and it filled up. And I said, wait a second. <laughs> and why it don't, filled up. <laughs> yeah, why don't I You're take funny. this and make this my, clearly this is um, a gift to yeah. know how to get people <laughs> to attend things. Why don't I make this into a business? I then discovered that in terms of the intersection between events and digital, that those events attract predisposed people, people who are already early adopters, and including Doctors 2.0. So my goal, which is, has always been to convince the decision makers, the healthcare professionals, I believe that if tomorrow there were an uprising by healthcare professionals saying, give us more digital, give us more patient engagement, the things that 
I believe in, we would have no problem. It would happen because authorities want to work along with the doctors. It isn't happening because not only do they have burnout, but they're not given the opportunities to really learn about these things. So that's why I'm still interested in the event world, but I want to be lodged where the doctors and other healthcare professionals are really going and not in private, not private, but isolated events for geeks. No, I love it. (laughs) I love it. Thank you for sharing that, Denise. And, And what would you say today is an exciting project you're working on? Well, it's that. I've always got more than one thing going on. It's A, getting the word out and identifying events where I can bring this expertise, this of digital and, and the patient. And um, I'm meeting next with a law firm. Law firms like to promote their expertise by organizing events. So hopefully we're going to put together a cycle that reflects these uh, interests. Mm-hmm. And secondly, I've, it's just been approved that there's a hospital somewhere in France in a very small, smallish town that would like me to participate in their, I'm not sure if I should say digital transformation, but in using the power of collective intelligence and inspiration Hmm. to create new ideas, working directly with the healthcare professionals from all over the hospital. It's a fairly large hospital, several hundred beds, and they need to make the atmosphere more conducive to better recruitment. So I'm going to do a lot of brainstorming with these people of what they would like to see in the way of novelty. And I know that or innovation and some of that will definitely be be digital. Some of it may be related to exchanges with patients. I'm looking forward to this project, which will, I guess, start soon and run for several months. Fascinating. Denise, you're always up to something really cool. So uh, That's because I'm excited about <laughs> life. And if I can make a spontaneous answer to a question you haven't asked, I would, <laughs> I would recommend that people do something I've started doing a little while ago, which is a daily gratitude workbook or notebook. At night, when the day is ending, I just write down very quickly some bullet points of what I'm grateful for. And I think that this gives you a view. When you look around yourself, you see the good stuff. Love that. Yeah. That's a great, it's a great tip, Denise. So I personally, in my morning routine, right when I wake up, the first thing that I do every day is go through several things that I'm grateful for. I don't write them down. So I think that's a good next step for me. And listeners, it is a big deal. You know, if you come from a place of gratitude versus a place of expectation. It's a completely different world. And Denise is obviously a testament to that. So appreciate you sharing that, Denise. Thank you. Uh, getting close to the end, I've got a lightning round, a couple questions for you there, followed by a book that you recommend to the listeners. You ready? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. What's the best way to improve healthcare outcomes? Ask the patient. What is the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid? Isolating the individual into their different parts rather than looking at the person as a whole. How do you stay relevant despite constant change? It's about what you are exposed to. So reading material and challenging yourself by meeting with people that are different from yourself. What is one area of focus that drives all else in your work? Listening. And Denise, these next two are more on a personal note for the listeners to get to know you. What is your number one health habit? The number one thing that I've 
learned as a new habit is how to breathe in to breathe better thanks to using a, a digital watch. Love it. And what is your number one success habit? Get outside. <laughs> I think that uh, yeah. we spend too much time at our desks. I agree with you. I think that's a good one. To get with people. Yeah. I'm at my best when I'm in uh, exchange with people. Love it. Face to face. That's really good. What book would you recommend to the listeners, Denise? So I have two books to recommend. Okay. One for your whole life that is called The Art and Practice of Loving, mm. Living a Heartfelt Yes by Frank Andrews, PhD. I did this book within a course that's online called Love as a Factor for Social Justice that you can find from Stanford on Coursera and in the short term, Sapience by mm. Yuval Harari, which gives yeah. you a new way of looking at the history of the earth. Love it. Some great recommendations, Denise. And listeners, you could get links to those books as well as a full transcript of our interview with Denise. Go to outcomesrocket.health and in the search bar, type in Denise Silber, it's S-I-L-B-E-R, or type in Basile Strategies, that's B-A-S-I-L strategies. You'll find this podcast there with everything you need to take action on the things you learned today. So Denise, uh, before we conclude, I'd love if you could just share a closing thought and then the best place where the listeners could get in touch with you or learn more about your work. Closing thought is that one must always remain optimistic. As long as you have a breath in yourself, there's something to be done. It's a great message. And if the listeners wanted to learn more about you and your work, what would be the best place for them to uh, check it out? Well, they can follow me on LinkedIn under my name, and uh, they can also check out the doctors20.com website and its blog. And it's doctors20.com? Yeah, doctors20.com. Beautiful. And, and they, we'll, of course, if they follow me on Twitter, I'd be very happy. That's Health20Paris. Health20Paris. Doctors20.com. We'll leave those links in the show notes. If today's interview resonated with you and you want to check out this, this awesome conference that uh, Denise has put together, it's now embedded in part of a larger one, as well as her work. Follow her on Twitter. We'll leave all those links in the show notes. So Denise, just want to say thank you so much. Really have uh, enjoyed our talk today. Thank you. You're doing a wonderful job yourself in presenting all these people to your listeners. Thanks for listening to the Outcomes Rocket podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at www.outcomesrocket.com for the show notes, resources, inspiration, and so much more.